Good morning, Springs Community Church, everybody watching online. I'm so excited to be with you guys as we wrap up our series, Monarchy, where we are taking a look at the triumphs and the tragedies of three of Israel's great kings. Before we jump into the passage and see what God has in store, pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time that we have to gather virtually connected as one body to learn about you. Lord, I'm asking that you would use this time to strengthen our hearts, to love you more. God, would you please help me to love you more through this? Help our body, help folks who don't know you to come to know you. Help those who do know you to grow in a love for you. May that be the only thing we as a people ever pursue. We need your help. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So it was Wednesday afternoon. I was in a meeting with a staff member. It was MK. We're sitting there talking. I'd set my phone down on a table, right? Because I want to be polite. My phone's down on the table. My wife calls. Now, if it was anybody else, I'd ignore it. But I try to make a little prioritized effort. So I reach over and I push the, can I call you later button, right? Can I call you later? Letting her know I saw it. I'm in a meeting. She usually gets it. As soon as I push that, within seconds, my phone rings again. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a system at home where if you call multiple times, it means no, seriously answer the phone. So I immediately knew something was off, but I didn't know if it was serious. So I pick up the phone, my wife, in one word, I knew something tragic had happened. You ever had that phone call where the person calls and then you hear the tone of their voice before they ever even finish the sentence and the insides of you just start to like twist and you're like, oh no, what happened. Well, that's immediately what happened. My wife, she started out like this. John, except her voice is like frantic, kind of in and out of crying, trying to keep herself calm type thing. John, do we have a second set of car keys for my vehicle? I think, hey, Taylor, I think we lost those in San Marcos. I know, I know. We're great ownership. Got it. I think we lost those in San Marcos. Okay, John, I need you to know everything is okay. Now, right there, I immediately know she's lying, but we're not going to address dishonesty in the moment because you just want to hear what's going on because from her tone, everything is not okay. If you're calling me like this, everything is definitely not okay. But she starts, hey, everything is okay. I have locked the keys in the car and the children are in the vehicle. (gasps) And then there's this little bit of pause. And I don't know why she paused. And then I hear this, but... The car is running. And I ask her, and I say, okay, sweetie. You don't want to overreact. You don't want to escalate. you got to uh, de-amplify. you got to bring things down, de-escalate. And I say, okay, sweetie, how much gas is in the car? And I'm thinking, okay, this thing can run all day. It was the afternoon. It was like 4 p.m., right? It's out in Texas heat. It's sun. But, man, they got AC going. They're going to be fine. How much gas is left in the car? There's a pause. The gas light just came on. Boom! Tragedy. I'm worried. I'm nervous. Do I respond that way? No! I've seen enough Discovery Channel uh, documentaries and shows to know that in the moment, the worst thing you can do is panic. So I say to her, okay, sweetheart, 
take a deep breath. Now, I said it to her, but really, it was absolutely for me. She was kind of frantic and in and out of it, but she was probably doing okay. And I take this deep breath, and I say, okay, sweetie, here's what we're going to do. Then you start building a plan, because immediately, you got to go into action. And I know where they are. They were parked outside of HEB, right right up there, up the hill, kind of off 46. And if you know, like, when I say outside of HEB, I literally mean, you know where cars go, and they, like, drop somebody off, and that's, like, where they drop them off and then drive away? I mean, like, right in front of H-E-B. So my wife, I can hear her talking to Lily through the glass. I say, hey, sweetheart, <clears throat> have you tried talking Lily through, crawling to the front and unlocking the door? She says, John, I tried. She was in her car seat. She tried to undo it. Lily's in tears. I can hear Lily crying through the car. Taylor's starting to cry. Trip is crying. I'm sitting there and I'm like, you're too far away for me to put on my Batman cape, but I'm coming. I'm coming. So I get in the car and I say, okay, sweetie, here's what you got to do. I'm going to call Progressive, try and get emergency roadside service to come break in the car. We'll get the kids. It's going to be fine. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to immediately hang up and dial 911. You need to tell them kids are locked in the car. You got that? Yes, John. I got that. Boom. She goes, I call Progressive in the midst of doing the speed limit on my way up the hill. Don't ever speed, don't break the law. But doing the speed limit all the way up the hill, I'm just having this whole conversation in my head. Oh my goodness, are they okay? How long will gas go? How much gas is in a tank? What will it be? And I'm on my way driving up this hill and I'm thinking about, okay man, if I gotta break in the window, like which window? And if you've ever broken through a window with like your hand, then here, here's what you know. It's actually not that easy. So I'm thinking like, okay, do I use a brick? Do I use a rock? Do I go in the front window? Because then it could splash and get on trip. Do I go in the driver's side window? Then it could splash and get on lily. Do I go in the back? Okay, that's not the back. Do I shatter the front windshield? Then I'm thinking about, man, how much is it going to cost to just break the car to get in there? I pull up to H-E-B. My wife is outside. She's talking through the window to my daughter, Lily. I, I pull in. She's in tears, but she's holding it together. And immediately, I see something beautiful in the midst of this tragic moment. Tragedy is there, but I see this moment of beauty, this blue and red and bright red fire truck pulling up, lights and sirens, baby, right into H-E-B, coming to save the family. I park the car, and there's this sense of victory and triumph, and I'm running towards their vehicle. My wife is talking, firefighters, get out of the truck. It's like they were total pros at this, which means there's sadly potentially a lot of parents that are bad at locking their kids in cars during Texas summers, but that's not a, a default on my parenting. We'll come back to that later. They come in. They pry open the car. All of a sudden, they're running this thing down, and they're rolling down my window, and I'm thinking to myself, man, it is surprisingly easy to break into a vehicle. So that's going through my head. But then we unlock the car. I open the door. I undo Lily. I pick out my three-and-a-half-year-old. Taylor's around the other side. She's crying, holding Trip. Trip is crying. Lily's crying. I'm looking at Lily saying, are you okay, sweetie? She says, I'm, I'm, I'm upset, and I'm scared. And I say, well, well, do you want a popsicle? And immediately we get smiles. We turn, we walk over to the firefighters. I don't want them to be scared of firefighters. I don't want them to be scared of the moment. And I start talking to them. I say, hey, Lily, why don't we tell them thank you? I thank them. She thanks them. We start asking, what do firefighters do? They serve, they protect, they put out fires, they help families. It was this moment, guys, where right after, then you got that 20-minute almost emotional come-down period where I just hung out with my family in the parking lot of H-E-B, 
Here's, here's the reason I share that, as crazy as that story is. Here's the first reason. One, we at the Springs have a parenting ministry, and we would love to help you. Other people teach it besides myself and my wife. That, that's the first reason I want to let you know that. Second reason, the real reason I let you know that, in the midst of 20 minutes, I experienced, and my wife most especially experienced, all the emotions of tragedy, fear, despair, worry, anxiety, tragedy, and triumph, victory, the fire department coming, your tax dollars to NBFD are effective and great. I felt all those feelings in the midst of all that right there. The reason I share that is is if you've been tracking with us over the past few weeks, then here's what you know. You know that we're working our way through a series right now we're calling Monarchy. We are looking at the triumphs, the moments of victory and celebration and joy, as well as the moments of tragedy, colossal misses, painful sin, tragic despair, tragedy, and the lives of three of Israel's most notorious, famous, and influential kings. I I know that it's really meant to cover their lives as we talk about their their triumphs and their tragedies where my story, I know it's just symbolic of one moment, but here's what's true. That one moment represents what's true of your life and mine. We go through amazingly high moments of triumph and tragically low moments of tragedy. So we've been looking at these kings to see what has been the guiding influence through their lives. What has helped them navigate their triumph moments, the celebratory faithfulness in them? And then what has guided them or what have they forgotten? And as they forgot, it left them in these just moments of tragedy. Two weeks ago, Garrison, he taught us about King Saul, the triumphs and the tragedies, how the fear of God and the fear of man, they are incompatible. Last week, I talked about King David, his triumphs, his tragedies, and how this beautiful guiding theme to the life of David was simply do what God asks, no matter the cost. He was a man after God's own heart. I'm so excited today to wrap up this series where we look at a third king, King Solomon. Now, like King David, like Saul, you want to find these guiding themes. Now, here's what was true of Solomon. There's generally a theme about him of wisdom. Solomon, we'll we'll talk about it in a minute, Solomon was the wisest man to have ever walked the face of the planet besides Jesus Christ. He had all this wisdom. So if you were to come and try and summarize this man's life, this man who has close to 14 chapters written about him, this man who wrote three different books of your Bible, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, what's that perfect summary? And and the place where God led me was right into Proverbs. I want to read a few of the things that I could have picked, but I want to settle on what I really think was the guiding theme of Solomon's life and then how it led him through triumph, But how him forsaking it, how him forgetting it, brought about tragedy. You don't have to turn here, but let me read Proverbs 1 through 7. This could be a verse that we could put to a guiding theme of Solomon's life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We could talk about how the guiding theme of Solomon's life was the fear of the Lord. Not that he was scared of God, but he had this reverential awe about him, where he knew God is God, I am not. We could talk about that. Another verse that we could talk about from Proverbs, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, famous one. You probably have it maybe on a painting, on a coffee cup. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. We could talk about how Solomon sought out of wisdom and a fear of God to not rely on himself, but to depend on God for everything and saying, God, will you make my path straight? We could talk about that. Or we could talk about this one. It's Proverbs 4, verse 23, another famous verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4, 23 again. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's this sense of, of Solomon writing there saying the number one thing you must do in wisdom is examine your own heart. If you want to fear the Lord, if you want to lay things aside, if you want to entrust things to God, even when you don't understand, what do you have to do? You have to keep your heart with vigilance. What does it mean to keep? Keep, it means to protect. It means to guard. It would have literally been used of like a centurion stand at an outpost that monitored what came into a city and what exited a city. He's literally saying, you must monitor what comes in and goes out of your heart. And the heart here, the Hebrew, it speaks to personhood, personality, the whole being. It's not just emotions. It's your mental will and faculty. He's saying you have to guard that. And he says, why? For from what you guard, out of you flow the springs of life. It speaks to this theme of your input directs your outcome. How you and I, Christian, how we manage what influences us, how we keep our heart impacts, directs, can help determine, shape, and influence what overflows out of us, we know this to be true inherently. There's a famous line even about this that Christians, in your Bible translation may say this, that have used the line of not keep your heart with all vigilance, but they say this, guard your heart. It's good language because you have to guard, but we Christians, we've kind of made it cliche. We, we've come and we've applied it, especially since about 2000, right, in a, in a Christian kind of dating movement. We've applied it mostly to dating, like romantic relationships for Christians where all of a sudden, for example, you could find a female who's gone on a third date with a guy. She comes, she talks to her friend. She says, she, <laughs> I want to be respectful. She says, uh, hey, gals, I had such a great time. We're going on a fourth date. I think he might be the one. Starts to share that, starts to give her heart to it. And then her friend's like, hey, hey, that's great, but guard your heart. You don't know. And, and then you find like the guy on the reverse who's like, hey, guys, it's been six years. I, I don't want to move too fast but I think I might be ready to propose. Now, men, if that's you, you don't need six years. You can decide. Everyone's imperfect. You marry a woman who fears God. But we've applied it to, like, guard your heart in romance. Hear me say it applies there. But where does it really apply? To just faithfulness in general. The guiding theme of Solomon's life, what anchored him in wisdom, we're going to see it. What brought about his triumph, we're going to see it when he forsook, when he stopped actively, daily living it, we're going to see it. That guiding theme was guard your heart. Today, I want to talk with you and I as we wrap up our series, Monarchy, how you and I are called to guard our heart. We're going to look at two of the most pivotal moments of Solomon's life, a moment of triumph and a moment of tragedy the moment of triumph is going to be Solomon. He has this famous prayer where he pleads with God for wisdom. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 3. As we switch and we look at that moment of tragedy, we're going to see this moment where Solomon, there's this slow fade 
into a divided love of Christ, a divided pursuit of God, a divided heart before Yahweh. That'll be 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3 as we pick it up and we see, remember this anchor, this theme to guard your heart. How does that start in Solomon's life? How does that start in a moment, moment of triumph? But before that, I want to connect the dots. How does Solomon become king? If you remember last week, here's what you know to be true. David is king over Israel. He's going to grow into his old age in faithfulness. In his old age, he has sons. He says Solomon will be king, but all of a sudden another son of his tries to take the throne. He doubles down. He affirms Solomon as king, and Solomon establishes himself as king over Israel. Now, he was young. He was likely appointed king right around 20 years old. The text where we're going to pick it up, he's likely 20. Maybe some scholars put him at like 29, about there in that timeline. But he's a young king. He's inheriting the legacy of a faithful father as he tries to lead God's people. Just before the verses where we're going to pick it up, Solomon, he's gone out to the high places, and he's gone there to offer sacrifices. Solomon, he shouldn't have done that. If you know your Old Testament, if you know your Bible, he should have gone to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. But instead, he's going to a different location. It's this hint, even at the beginning of Solomon's life, of a broken sense of priority. But Solomon, he's going there with good intention to worship God, and he's just worshiped and offered sacrifice. And then, as the text picks up, Solomon, he's gone to sleep. And what we're going to see is God is going to meet him through a dream in his sleep. So if you have a Bible, read with me. I'm going to read verses 5 through 14 and talk about them as we see right here this moment of triumph in Solomon's life. Verse 5. At Gibeon, that was where the high places were. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. God's appearing to Solomon. He's literally saying to him, almost as silly as like a genie coming out of a bottle. Hey, Solomon, if you could have anything from me, what would you have Solomon starts his answer in his dream. Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. He's talking about his dad. Why did God show that faithfulness to David, his father? He answers, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. In this moment of building triumph, as God comes to Solomon and he says, hey, Solomon, if I could do anything for you, if you could ask anything, what would you ask? The first thing Solomon does is he reminds himself the faithfulness of his daddy. He points to why God honored his dad and it was his integrity, his faithfulness, his obedience, his discernment of right from wrong in fighting to walk in righteousness. Now, we know David's life. Was he perfect? No. But once rebuked, did he walk in repentance? Yes, Solomon's celebrating that in his dad. Even as I read that, like if you're a dad at home or you're a parent, that is absolutely the way you pray you leave a legacy for your kids. You pray that your kids talk about you as an imperfect man, an imperfect woman, but one who sought to walk in uprightness before the Lord. That is an inherited legacy. That is a gift that you want to give them. That's one he had from David. Verse seven, and now, O Lord my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. 
And your servant, talking about himself still, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon comes right here, and he does three things in this prayer. After he celebrates the faithfulness of his dad, he doubles down, and he talks about, and you see the posture of his humility. He comes right there in verse 7. He says, O Lord, you have made your servant king. Servant right here in the Hebrew, if you looked at it, it's really closer to the word subordinate. Solomon, in the start of this, is fully recognizing, God, I am beneath you. Do you remember the fear of the Lord? It is a recognition. God is God, and I am not. The second part of his humility in the rest of verse 7, Solomon goes on, and he says, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Like right there, as I referenced at the beginning, Solomon, he's likely anywhere from 20 to 30 years old, so he's not really a child. He's speaking to, I'm inexperienced. I'm inheriting a faithful legacy of my dad. I'm immature in how to divinely be king. Help me. It's creating this dependency for God. Verse 8, your servant in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, Solomon, after his humility, you see a sense he grasped the responsibility of being king. He refers to the Israelites as your people, your chosen people. He knows that it's not his kingdom. He knows that those people are gods. He knows that those people are loved, known, created, cherished, called out by God. The second thing he says is he talks about the responsibility, just the task before him. They're a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. He had a massive task before him. This posture of responsibility, Solomon recognizes, God, you care for these people, and you have appointed me to care for them. Like as we're looking at this triumphant prayer from Solomon, like I have to ask, you, you likely, you don't have a kingdom, Right? You are not a a functional king or a functional queen, but you have leadership and influence. Whether that be you're a high school student or you're a young professional, you are a CEO or you are a mom holding down the fort, discipling the generation at home, wherever you are. But let me ask, do you view the people in your care as God's people, your family? What about your neighbors? Your community group? Do you feel a sense of responsibility for Lord? Help me to govern. Help me to shepherd. Help me to care for your people. Solomon does. You should too. Right there, he goes on in verse 9, and this is really the the climax of the section, and then we're going to read on to see how God answers it. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. I love this. He says, therefore, God, will you give me an understanding mind? See, Solomon right here, he begins to ask God for what he wants. And he doesn't ask God for wealth. He doesn't ask God for weapons so he can defeat his enemies. No, no, he asks God for wisdom. Verse 9, an understanding mind. Understanding here in the Hebrew, it literally means hearing or listening. Mind, it's interesting. If you remember the word mind in the Hebrew, It's the same word as Proverbs 4, verse 23, when we referenced, keep your heart with all vigilance. The same word there for heart in Hebrew is the same word used here for mind. 
You could translate this to say, God, give me a listening heart. I'm going to put before you, though, I think an even better application of it is actually this. Lord, give me a way to listen and obey. Here's the reason I share that. The word in Hebrew, and it was so fun studying this, so, so track with me. The word in Hebrew for hear or listen, it's very similar to the word obey, and that's intentional. Because in the culture, it was if you listened, you would obey. And then they would be able to tell those who obeyed were the ones who listened. Right here, Solomon is asking God for an obedient heart, an obedient mind to listen to what he has revealed and to walk in it. He doubles down in the rest of the verse where he says that I may discern between good and evil. I want to know the difference between what's righteous and unrighteous, faithful and faithless. God, help me. And then he talks about why, so I can govern your people. God, grant me this wisdom so I can govern your people. Grant me this wisdom so I can care for them. God's going to start talking now in verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God's honored. God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself lifelong riches or the lives of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. God's going to answer his prayer. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. The wisest man to have ever walked the face of the planet besides Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 13. I also, I give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. He literally just platforms Solomon to a whole new level as he gifts him with a supernatural sense of wisdom. And then don't miss this. Let's read verse 14. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Guys, Solomon, this triumphant moment, he has come and he has asked God for a sense of wisdom to shepherd his people to care for others. It's this beautiful moment. Now again, what does it mean to discern right from wrong? It means to keep your heart with vigilance. It means to guard it. And how does he want to guard it? He wants to guard it on behalf of the people. There's a fascinating thing that I looked at as I, as I studied this this weekend. This question just kept rolling around my head. And here, I want to ask it for you. Who did Solomon ask to receive wisdom for? Who did Solomon want wisdom for? If you look in your Bible, verse 9, it says he asked for it to govern your people, God. He describes it. Who is able to govern this great people? Solomon asked for wisdom to discern evil from right to care for others. But here's my question. Who did God give him wisdom for primarily? Solomon asked for wisdom for the people. Who did God primarily give wisdom for to Solomon? You see it in the passage right there, verse 14. Just circle back up to that. Verse 14, it says, If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your ways. So what does it look like to have an understanding mind? What does it look like to discern between good and evil it means to walk in the ways of God, to keep his statutes and his commandments. And then it highlights the legacy and the faithfulness of David. If you go back up, look back up at verse 6, you see it. It talks about David. 
great and steadfast love to your servant David. That's what God showed to David. Why? Because David walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart. See, guys, here's the thing. Solomon asked for wisdom to care for others. God gave Solomon wisdom primarily to care for himself. Solomon asked for wisdom to govern the people. God gave Solomon wisdom primarily to govern his own heart, to help guard his own heart, to keep it with all vigilance. Does that mean that wisdom won't by effect have some spill over onto the people? No, by no means. But the primary audience there it was Solomon. See, you and I, we think about wisdom and we think, no, 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 this is needed for the other people. God thinks about wisdom. He says, no, no, this is needed for you. You are the one that I'm asking and gifting to lead in wisdom because here's what God understands. God understands so goes the king, so goes the queen, so goes the kingdom. So goes the dad, so goes the mom, so goes the family, so goes the pastor, so goes the elder, so goes the church. So goes the leader of the community group, so goes the group. That you and I, in our positions of influence, have tremendous impact. And God knows the number one person that you and I need help with wisdom, guarding our heart, that we need help with that for, it's me. It's not them, it's me. And here's this beautiful thing, Solomon He understands that. He gets that with this gift of wisdom. And you see him lead the people in wisdom. You see him document it of his own life as he starts out after he receives this. He's going to write three of those books that I've referenced. Song of Solomon describing the beauty of, of what it looks like, husband and wife, in covenant marriage, in describing this. It's this beautiful picture of Christ in the church where Jesus describing his people. He says, I am my beloved's. And my beloved's is mine, this intimacy. This triumphant wisdom is going to come from him as he guards his heart, as he outlines the book of Proverbs, talking about wisdom, what the fear of the Lord means, how to run from the adulteress, how to steward money wisely, how to avoid false speech, how to care for people well. He's going to talk about it even after his heart had broken and tragedy had come in the book of Ecclesiastes. How the reality of walking in the fear of the Lord is the one thing while many things are vanity. Guard your heart. It's this triumphant moment, though. It's this triumphant moment. Solomon, from this, he's going to go and he's going to worship God. He's going to leave that moment of worshiping God back in Jerusalem. There's this famous narrative where two moms come before Solomon and they say, This is my child. No, this is my child. They are arguing over a baby. Solomon, he gives this crazy, seemingly barbaric counsel. He says, Okay, bring me a sword. I'm going to cut the child in half. He says, Hey, give one half to each parent. But there's brilliance in his wisdom. The mom, whose child it truly is, says, no, 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 please don't harm the child. She can have the child. Spare the child. Solomon immediately knows, okay, that's the mother. This moment brings this fame and notoriety to Solomon as all of Israel knows he is a wise king. That wisdom, God said, I'm going to expand that to the other kingdoms. All the kingdoms around were coming to Solomon. He was guarding his heart. He was shepherding the people in wisdom. Solomon went to build God the temple. You remember the temple that David was going to build, but God said, no, not you, but your son will build it. Solomon sets to building the temple. It was twice the size of the tabernacle. It was where the presence of the Lord would dwell. It was beautiful. It was magnificent. It took him seven years to build But right in the midst of this moment, Solomon, in the background, you know he's guarding his heart. He's fighting for faithfulness. He's running towards the things of God. You get this hint in the narrative 
that his priorities are beginning to shift, that maybe, just maybe, there's a continuing fade in his heart, the wrong direction. Right in the midst of this narrative where you see the temple being built and the temple consecrated and blessed, it talks about Solomon building his own palace. It talks about him building a palace that took 13 years when God's temple took seven. It talks about him building a palace where he makes a special room for the daughter of Pharaoh, his wife. If you know your Old Testament, you know Solomon was never meant to intermarry with someone who did not believe in the God of Yahweh. Solomon was never meant to make a marriage alliance with Egypt. God said, I brought you out of Egypt. I am your protector. I am your provider. You do not need to depend on them for an ally when you have God as your advocate. Yet there seems to be a slow fade. But despite the fade, Solomon, by all accounts, he's guarding his heart. He's leading in faithfulness. He consecrates the temple. He prays this beautiful prayer before Israel where in the moment of consecration, he says, God, fill this and honor this temple as a place of worship. And the Spirit of God comes down by cloud and by fire and fills it so much so that the presence of the Lord overtakes the temple. Not a single priest could fit inside because of God's presence. Time will go on. The nation of Israel will grow in prosperity. Decades are passing. There will be a famous moment where the queen of Sheba will come. She was coming from Ethiopia. She came to Solomon, hearing of his wisdom, hearing of his influence. She talks with Solomon. She sees and hears and understands his wisdom. And she leaves with something beautiful. She leaves praising Yahweh. But there's a moment right after that where the narration takes another turn, where you get another hint at the slow fade, where it turns this time. And you see Solomon seemingly boasting in all of his wealth, in all of his weapons, his arsenal. And those were two things Israelite kings weren't supposed to hold to. And that's what takes us to chapter 11. Turn with me in your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 11, as we see this slow fade that has taken place in the life of King Solomon. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 8, and then we're going to work our way through it. Here's where we've come, church. This is his moment of tragedy. But, but it's different. If you remember David's life last week, David had a massive incident. While he'd been imperfect along the way, he had a massive incident. What we're going to see here with Solomon was there was really, over decades, a slow fade in his life. The one who had started guarding his heart, living in wisdom, who'd done that, who'd done that, who'd done that, had likely over time diminished in that. And here... It's evident that it catches up. Verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning the Lord, which had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Do you see the tragic moment there? Here's what it's saying. Solomon had intermarried with women that God had said, I'm not calling you to. Is that because God's racist and prejudiced? No, it's because God knows they don't believe what you believe. They'll turn your heart away from me. When you go to shepherd your kids and you want to instill in them the love of Yahweh, they won't talk about Yahweh. They'll talk about Baal. They'll talk about Moloch. Do you see? And God's pleading, no, love me. And what has his heart done over time? It has clung to these women Verse 3, Solomon, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, 
which by the way, that's crazy. In modern day today, that's like clinical. His wives turned away his heart. Do you see over time there'd been a corruption in his heart? Why? He'd slowly faded. He'd stopped ruthlessly guarding it. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And hear this, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. What was once wholly committed, all in, undivided, God fully devoted to you, it was fractured. There was division in it now. That breaks the heart of God. What had happened in tragedy? Solomon had stopped guarding his heart and in the slow fade, the sensuality had taken over. But there's a thing about sensuality. It never just stays. It's sensuality and broken immorality. It goes to something else. And what does it go to in the life of Solomon? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. For Solomon went after. So we're about to list a few things, but it's interesting. Solomon once went after the things of God. Now you see in Solomon an intentional heart to move after other things, broken things, false gods. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Ashtoreth, she was the goddess of sexual immorality and fertility. He continues on in Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Milcom was the god of the underworld. So Solomon did, this is a summary statement for the season here, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. You see, David was sinful. David had imperfections in his life, but once presented, he repented, walked in a repentance. Solomon here, he's hardening his heart, becoming more divided. Let me ask you, have any of you ever looked back on seasons of your life and thought, man, I felt so close to God? And now you find yourself so distant, so detached, like there's no love. You, you almost have to fake it to act like it's there. Like you come and you go to sing a song of worship and there's no real worship on your lips. I wonder if some time ago you, I'm capable of it, stopped ruthlessly guarding your heart. And from that, what was once wholly devoted to God now has division, now has cracks, now has fractures. It goes on, talking about Solomon. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. That is the god of death. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. It's fascinating here. Molech, tragically, he's the god of child sacrifice. Your, your author goes so far as to say on the east side of Jerusalem. Why does that matter? That means that from the temple, the same temple that Solomon had built, he could walk out the front gate. He could come. He could see that moment and he could turn and he could look and he could see the temple of Molech that he built. You see, Solomon, he hadn't totally forsaken God. He hadn't totally abandoned the faith. He was creating this broken, synchronistic form of worship where he's interweaving the true things of God in broken, false idolatry. He built the temple of God, and he built a high place for Molech. Verse 8, so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. The tragedy of Solomon's life was somewhere over time, and you don't know exactly from the narration, but somewhere over time, he started ruthlessly, or excuse me, he stopped ruthlessly 
guarding his heart, daily examining what are the things of God I want to fill it with, what are the sins that I want to get rid of, what are the things that I want to avoid. He stopped guarding it. And what happened in the slow fade, a heart that was once wholly devoted to God was divided and fractured. The tragedy of this continues. The passage will go on, and here's what will happen. God is going to take the kingdom from Solomon. Because Solomon is no longer wholly his, he's going to give it to a servant of Solomon's named Jeroboam. He'll give it to Jeroboam. Solomon eventually is going to find out about that, and he's going to pull like a King Saul. He's going to try to assassinate Jeroboam, but Jeroboam will escape. God will rise up enemies. God will actively rise up enemies against Solomon to attack him from the south, to attack him from the north. It's heartbreaking. Solomon will give the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam, and his son was a fool. You see this amazing man, this once man who was wise, discerned good from evil, who guarded his heart, sought to govern the people in righteousness, slowly fade. Here's the reason why I think this matters so much. Church, follower of Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus, and this isn't for you, if the wisest man who ever lived stopped living in wisdom, so can you. If the wisest man who ever lived stopped guarding his heart, so can you. And, and here's the tragic thing. I imagine many of us have done this to, to varying degrees already. That there are things in our life that previously, in the past, man, we were close with Christ. We didn't tolerate it. We wouldn't mess with it. That was sin. We wouldn't go near that. We wouldn't flirt with the line. We wouldn't push the boundaries with the girl. We wouldn't treat our spouse that way. We wouldn't ethically walk through meetings that way in business negotiations. We wouldn't do it in the past. But in a slow fade, in an absence of guarding the heart, that's exactly where we find ourselves today. We know this to be true, not just spiritually, but practically. We all know the cliche story of the politician who gets into politics, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, hoping to do good, and over time, not all, but becomes corrupted and changed. The CEO who comes, who's the entrepreneur, who builds the company to provide well for themselves, their family, and then to provide jobs for others, over time just gets caught up in a sense of greed, in a slow fade to where it's never enough, just one dollar more, and the family they went to provide for is now the family they neglect. It's, it's tragic how you hear about this with, with pastors, celebrity pastors how they come and they preach one thing, but in the background they'd stop guarding their heart and there was a slow fade until there's a moment of tragic sin and dishonoring of Christ. I, I was with a group of pastors this week and we all went around in a circle praying, God, protect me from myself. Help me to guard my heart. Going in circles, God, protect me from the in, um, insecurity of what other people think of me, the comparison of other uh, preachers and teachers and how they feel, uh, uh, broken images that I could find to cope with, gluttony, laziness, arrogance, thinking I'm wise in my own eyes. And we go around this room, why? If it happened to Solomon, it could happen to me, it could happen to you. The husband and the wife that were once so close in their relationships with Christ, and from that, the relationships with each other, but they, they neglected the things of God, and from that, the marriage. It's cold, it's distant. Do you see the slow fade? What happens when we stop guarding the heart? Yet so many of us, we think, no, man, we'd never do this. I wouldn't do that. That's not me. 
church, you could, I could. If we're honest, you do, I do. What is Solomon a reminder of? God grant us an understanding mind to discern between good and evil, to guard the heart. We've looked at through this, the triumphs and the tragedies of Solomon's life. The triumph, this beautiful moment where this young king asked for this discerning heart and God says, I will bless you with wisdom. I will grant this to you. And then Solomon takes it and he leads it and he does govern the people. There's so much faithfulness to his story and the wisdom. Yet we see a tragedy. We see this moment where this one who set out to guard his heart, to walk and to listen in obedience, Somewhere along that way, he stopped taking it so serious. And once you start taking it a little bit less serious, it's easier to take a little bit less serious and a little bit less serious. And you see this slow fade until there was once this righteous king and there's now one whose heart is no longer wholly devoted, who clings to false gods. What false gods are you perhaps clinging to in this season? Is it what other people think of you and how you care for and you disciple your family as you return back to school? Is it the homeschool co-op where you go to and there's a sense of comparison in your kid versus their kid? Or is it self-righteousness as you compare your kid to other kids? Is it right now the God you've clung to? Has it been this crippling sense of uh, indecision of what do I do? Does a child return? Does a child not to? I have to make the perfect decision for my child. What if I don't? God is sovereign. Is it you coming with a cavalier attitude? Is it you being lost in your career, money, status? Is it you being lost in a second world of sensuality where you have given your heart to things and you're too scared to tell? Find freedom. Is it you grappling to a sense of self-righteousness where you think, I would never do that? Church, we could all do this. Here's the question then. If you're thinking on this, let me ask you, are you, are you more influential than King Saul? No. Are you more faithful than King David? No. Are you more wise than King Solomon? No. Yet each one of those men, with their triumphs, and they had many, they experienced tremendous tragedy, and that tragedy was directly associated with the absence of faithfulness during either a season or a majority of their life. How are you doing? You who are standing, take heed lest you fall. We had three kings in this monarchy. There were triumphs. There were tragedies. Solomon, he sought to guard his heart but he slowly faded from it. There's an amazing beauty as we've looked at these three different kings because they all point to something that you need and that I need. They point to the need for a greater king, a king that was faithful, a king that didn't cave to the fear of man, a king that was always after the heart of God, a king that would come, that would guard his heart, walk in righteousness, live Jesus Christ, a perfect man who would go to the cross, but at the cross he'd stop guarding his heart. He would allow his heart to be broken. He would allow himself to be torn from the Father, separated. See, he's the perfect king. He's the one that God had always promised to the people of Israel in the covenant of grace to you and to me. He was the one that the stories foretold, the coming king. 
and as he stopped guarding his heart that God might break it for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, he died. He rose from the grave. And here's the thing. Our king is coming back. Righteous and true and perfect. So even though you are not more influential than Saul, even though you are not more faithful than David, even though you are not wiser than Solomon, and neither am I, there's a king in heaven who looks at you and he looks at me and he says, believe. If you believe you're an heir to the kingdom, I call you brother, I call you sister. God the Father calls you child. You are sealed by the power of the Spirit. You and I join the true monarchy. We are children of the true king. May we live that way. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it instills and teaches. I thank you for this text and the passage. I'd ask that you'd use it to inform our lives as we go from here to love you. Help us to guard our hearts. Thank you that you guard us. Amen. Hey, thank y'all so much for joining us. Can't wait to join with you guys next weekend. Big serve weekend. Make sure you pick your place where you're gonna serve. Can't wait to get after it with you. Talk to you soon.